0: So here we are in 1 Corinthians. I hope to maybe set the stage for 2016. I want you to join me in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read all of the second chapter. It's only 16 verses long, but we'll spend most of our time in just the first five verses. And I want to read to you something that I hope will give you maybe a sense of identity and sense of direction and sense of joy for this coming year. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, that is Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory none of the rulers of this age understood this nor if they had for if they had they would have they would not have crucified the lord of glory but as it is written what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what god has prepared for those love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. I hope that God's Word is heard. I hope that we would not simply be hearers, but doers and responders to God's Word. May we hide it deep within it, deep within us, that we might not run away from God, but run toward Him. We love New Year's resolutions. As a culture, I would say, if I was just to kind of speak of what I see and what I observe, we, we love New Year's resolutions. Love them a lot. There's just kind of this new... Uh, sense of accomplishment and a sense of self-will, and I, there's a—I mean, I, I don't even want to fill in the blank of what I really think it is, but but the best maybe the best way to see this is for the next few days, maybe even weeks. I want you to make sure you go out of your way to drive by places like like Avera Health or or like any any gym, um, any, any 24-hour fitness, whatever fitness place you see. Just pay close attention to the parking lots for the next couple of weeks. Take notes, maybe even take a little picture of it, and then. In a few months, do it again. Look look at those places again. And just just see, see if I'm right about this, but I think you might see a difference. I think you might see a, a, a large assortment of people loading into these places now and for the next couple of weeks and, and less in the weeks to come. Because right now, people, yeah, this, this is the year, man. This is it. 2016. I'm going to do it this year. I'm gonna really going to do it. Right, you talk to college students. College students like, I'm going to read this semester. I'm going to read all of the stuff I'm supposed to read. I'm going to keep up with it. And people who are not college students say the same thing. I'm going to read books this year. Right, I'm going to I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to be that person that, that I want to be. And it's built into our culture, and it's a beautiful thing. But just like the rest of the holidays, we've kind of seen. Much of what our culture celebrates at a time like this is simply a shadow. It is but an image of a greater and more power and transformative truth. So just like the Christmas lights and the Christmas trees are beautiful and great, not to be disparaged, but instead meant to be seen as a a shadow of the, the coming of Jesus, so also the kind of celebration of a new year is meant to hopefully be a shadow for us to see something that I believe God is doing. Some sources would even tell us that, that the, the idea of a New Year's resolution has religious roots. Did a little research on this, you'll come to find out the Babylonians, they regularly made promises to their gods at the beginning of each calendar year. They made promises. Promises that they would return all of the borrowed objects and that they would pay back all of their debts. This year, I'm going I'm to get out of debt. This year, this, the Babylonians began this. This is not new. The Romans, we find evidence that they began every year making promises to their god Janus, or Janus, whom the month January is named after. In the medieval era, this is one of my favorite, knights would take what they called the peacock vow or the pheasant vow. This is a pretty cool thing. This is probably a a tradition I think some guys should bring back. I see at the end of every Christmas season, they would reaffirm their commitment to chivalry. And so they would go, and instead of a turkey, they would eat a peacock or a pheasant, because they believed that of all of God's creatures, the pheasant and the peacock were the most beautiful and the most noble. They were like royalty, and they were, they were dressed like royalty. So here you go. Hunt. Make sure you hunt lots of pheasant, but do so maybe renewing your vow to chivalry, to selflessness, to service to a greater cause, a king that is greater and above you, right? That's that's a kind of a cool, that's a cool New Year's tradition I wouldn't mind bringing back, and it gives me an excuse to go pheasant hunting, right? There it is. At watch night services, historically many Christians for the last several centuries have prepared for the year ahead by beginning at New Year's to pray about the things that they would begin to sacrifice when the season of Lent begins, like for us, in February. And they would begin to think about their sacrifices for Lent, not flippantly and not on a whim when when Lent snuck up on them, and, oh, I I better not do this thing that I shouldn't be doing anyway. Instead, they would already begin at the New Year to think about the ways in which God might be calling them to lay down something for His glory. This tradition has many religious parallels. The Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, all the way to Yom Kippur is meant to be a season of reflection on one's wrongdoings that they've committed over the year. And that period of time is a time in which they're meant to seek atonement. And they're meant to seek forgiveness for all of the wrong that they've done. Intentionally to pay back their debt. What they owe. To do something they've been missing out on the year before. To fix something. To right a wrong. And we'll come back to that. And since it's one of our key values, I believe, as a church, not to hide from the culture and not to hide from the trends of the culture, but instead to engage the culture with the good news of Jesus, then maybe I think Paul offers something helpful for us. And we can engage the culture, this sense, this renewing sense of doing something this year differently than we did last year. We can do so, hopefully, just like Paul does for us. Because we as Christians, we believe in resolutions. Resolutions. We definitely believe in resolutions. We love New Year's resolutions. The difference between the resolutions that the Christian would make and and a New Year's resolution is that we decide every day to make those resolutions. The way that we resolve to be who God has called us to be takes a word and a theme throughout the New Testament to explain for us. And that word is repentance. In fact, Martin Luther, as an affirmation of, of this life style that we're meant to have that Paul begins to point to here in Philippians or excuse me in first Corinthians chapter two is found in his first thesis you see Martin Luther we, we step into a tradition of people who want to reclaim and rediscover the truth of the gospel that God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves that God has paid the price for us that we could not afford to pay and one of the first theses that, that of the 95 that Luther nailed onto a door to, to speak out against what had been practiced as uh, the authority of God rather than the authority of man to forgive. The first one says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he, inti- he intended excuse me, that the entire life of believers should be repentance. One of the first words we see coming out of jesus public ministry especially in mark chapter one is he says repent because a kingdom is near there's a new kingdom and a new king coming turn away from your old loyalties turn toward loyalty to this new and good king we read that again when our lord and master jesus christ says repent he intended that the entire life of our believers of the believers should be repentance the next two even begin to fulfill this. Like This word, number two, cannot be understood as simply referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. That is, the act of repentance isn't just a, a ritual, isn't just a religious tradition, isn't just a religious practice to be undertaken. It cannot be understood as only that practice. The third one, the third thesis, thesis, excuse me, of the ninety-five theses says it this way. Yet it also does mean not only solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. That is, the putting the death of that which is of the flesh of this world. So, this practice of repentance, which is constantly turning away from that which is rebellious and against God, turning away not only sin, but our inner sinfulness, and turning toward the good news of Jesus, is the life to which you and I have been called. All of the Christian life is repentance, turning away from sin, and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners. This isn't just a one time inaugural experience. This isn't just something for young people learning this good news. It isn't just something for a youth camp. This is something that is meant to be the substance of following Jesus. The good news is for every day. It's for every single, mo- every single moment. And repentance, turning away from our sinfulness and turning to the good news of Jesus, is our continual posture. This is who we are such that the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not just about back in the day when Jesus forgave us. And it's neither just only about one day when we get to enjoy a pie in the sky that is heaven. It is meant to be the all-encompassing message for all of the universe to be shaped. It is the essential message. It's the thing. It's the thing we find identity in. You see, Luther lived at the foot of the cross, and he invites us to live at the foot of the cross. It's a place where our rebellious condition constantly comes in contact with God's lavish grace upon sinners. Living at the foot of the cross, always being reminded that our sin has already been paid for, it's already been taken care of. Begin to see the shadow of things to come. Did you hear the, the Jewish practice at Rosh Hashanah is meant to, to pay and to atone for sins. If you're in debt, pay those debts off. All the way back to, it harkens back to the Babylonians who thought, man, we need to pay all the debts. We need If we owe something, we need to settle that account. Hear the good news that is but a shadow in those practices that we practice every day and celebrate. We do not hope in this new year that we will pay for the sins of the previous years. We in this new year and every day Now and forevermore, celebrate that those sins have already been paid for. We don't hope to settle the accounts in 2016, the ones that we we overdrew in in 2015. We celebrate every day and moment in the life of Jesus at the foot of the cross that those accounts have been paid in full. They're finished, they're done. So this posture, this posture of resolving and deciding and making a judgment to be a certain way and to have a certain disposition is the disposition that Christ has modeled and given to us. We don't graduate from it. We constantly need it. Because it is always the force of the culture, whether it's the Babylonians or whether it's the Jewish practice of Rosh Hashanah, it's always the practice of our culture to want to save ourselves, to always point towards something else. So in verse 1, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ crucified. You see, God speaks to the very soul of a human being. Not according to human wisdom, but by the radically good news of Jesus. God relates to people. God relates to you and to me. becomes translated through flesh and blood. A human being. Visible for you and I. Not not in mystery and and not in, in secrecy. God is not playing hide and seek with you. He's not just around the corner where if you just do this thing or make this one decision, then it'll all fall into place. God manifoldly and clearly and sufficiently wants to be clearly seen to you through the good news of what Jesus has done for you. That word you see in verse 2, it says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. This word krino, this, this, this picture that, that we see throughout the New Testament, in fact, is, is meant simply to, to convey thoughts of judgment or, or, or thoughts of reflection. To make a judgment is to, to krino my, to krino, to, to decide or to resolve as some of your translations may actually have. And this verb is meant to describe the act of carrying out a a judicial process, weighing options and then making a decision, making a judgment based on this. This is not a flippant whim. This is not an overreaction to something that has already come to pass. But instead, this is a calculated and, and weighed decision. This, this word that we see translated "decide" or, or "resolved" in verse two is used throughout the New Testament, or the New Testament as, as a testimony to, to people's judgment. It's meant to describe the act of weighing different terms. It's meant to show this thorough investigation of something and coming to a convictional conclusion. So much so that we even see this word used in a different form toward the book of Revelation. As Jesus sits on the throne, gazes over all of creation, He, using the same word that Paul uses to decide, He decides the fate of eternity. He decides the fate of people. He is the judge. He is the authority. And so Paul is saying, I have with authority, with great reflection, definitively said this is what I will do. I have resolved to do this. What did he resolve to do? I resolved to know nothing. I resolved to know nothing. Except Jesus Christ and the crucified. Look at the opening words in verse 1. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. When he says, as for me, he's indicating that he's, he's picking up on something that he's been talking about already he's saying for me and you want to know what that what is that what's the transition here if you want to skip back to verse 17 of chapter 1 we saw this a few weeks ago as we talked about the gospel being made visible in the baptism of a believer and follower in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, he says, to a church that's begun to be splintered and have different loyalties to different leaders. He says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize because these people were beginning to think that they had special standing because Paul or Apollos or someone else had baptized them. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but He sent me to preach the Gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied Of its power his one job was to preach the gospel to make the good news of who jesus is evident for people and to add anything to it and to try to to do something that was ultimately eloquent wisdom or or lofty words was actually to empty the cross of christ of its power verse 18 it says that the word of this cross is actually folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved. This is a miraculous mystery for us. It is the power of God. This is how God saves us. This is what God is doing. And Paul is picking up on a theme that he has devoted his life to carrying out. As for me, I will continue to do this. And the manner of, in which he is doing this is especially important. He says he didn't come proclaiming this testimony of God with a lofty speech or with wisdom. Now, step back for a minute. We saw a few months ago that as Paul made his way to Corinth, that what he found there was a lot like what we would call Las Vegas. Like it's the sin city. I mean, this is where it happens. If if, if there was a theme in Corinth, it would be just like Vegas, man. If whatever happens there stays there. It was a regular practice to go and worship the god Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the way in which you regularly worship the God S of Love was to engage in temple prostitution with the priestesses of Aphrodite. This was a regular practice, and so when when Paul gives a lot of good words to in this in this letter to Corinth, first and second Corinthians, he's giving words to what would probably be like a church in Vegas. Like you're going to have to fight against some trends. So think about what Paul is saying here. It's it's common thing for in Corinth for philosophers to come and, and to speak and, and to put on a show with their eloquence and with their great wisdom. In the same way that you and I both know there's a kind of a show that takes place in a strip in Vegas, right? And those kinds of shows look a certain way. Now, I don't know what they look like. I'm sure you know what they're like. I, I wouldn't know anything that happens there, I mean, but I'm sure you do, right? So I'm sure this makes sense to you. But but if I were to know what maybe happens in Vegas, and maybe if it didn't stay in Vegas, then then I would probably think that there's there's a way in which this town works and there's a way in which this town looks and paul's saying you know how things look in the town this is different from that it'd be like saying look i came to you I came to you people in sin city in las vegas I, did, I came to you on the strip i didn't i didn't come with flowers and lights and fireworks and neon signs i didn't come with any of those things. I didn't bring anything to the table that would have given me standing in a city like that. Instead, he says, I come simply and humbly with this message. He even says in verse 3 that he did so weakly, he did so trembling, and he did so out of fear. And the way in which the world works and the way in which the world understands things is meant to set, is meant to set a stage for the way in which God speaks radically differently. He came proclaiming something, not, not with impressive speech or with impressive form of wisdom like the Corinthians would have valued and understood, but instead he came with a very simple message that Jesus Christ is all. He's in all. And I wanted to know nothing. I mean, just think about the, the boldness of those words. I decided to know nothing. If you don't fill in the blank for the end of that sentence, that's already pretty interesting, isn't it? Listen, I made a decision. Come to the conclusion, I ought to know nothing. I know nothing. I ought to know nothing. This, I've decided after 2015 and 2016, I will know nothing. Nothing at all. This is the point where my wife would go like, congratulations. Point, right? You win. You made it. You know nothing. Maybe though, as we begin to see this radical form of speech that he makes, you, you begin to kind of see like, this, there's something bigger here. I, I promise you, I'm going to know nothing. I'm going to, I'm going to relinquish my knowledge. I'm going to give up my understanding for many different things so that I would understand clearly this one thing. I'm going to give up that knowledge and know nothing except for Jesus Christ. And Paul does this in a powerful way. He speaks from experience. The manner of his preaching is different from what the Corinthians would have probably been accustomed to hearing, namely with large words and and great rhetorical exaggeration, great amazing illustration that that was confounding and was a high-sounding rhetoric. Picture the words of Shakespeare. Picture reading the words or plays of Shakespeare in our, our common vernacular. It just sounds different. It's English. It's the same language. And yet, if someone were to speak like the words of Shakespeare, and I can't even do a good impersonation at this point, you would think, what, you know, who, who are you talking to? Who art, to whom art thou speaking? I mean, you get what I'm saying, like, what? Like no one talks that way. That's a joke. But he says, I don't come that way. I want to speak to you in words that you can understand. Not high-sounding rhetoric. Not lofty language. Not with a worldly wisdom. Not with pomp, not with applause, not with circumstance, but instead with accessibility. His role, you see, according to verse 17 of chapter 1, was simply to be a proclaimer, a herald, a faithful bearer of a message. That's it. i got one job, and that's to proclaim this to you. I've got one thing to know. I have one job, and that is to give you this good news. And he explains further that the reason for doing this was so that the people wouldn't have their faith in the speaker and the messenger, but ultimately they would put their faith in the power of god they would put their faith in the power of God. So what does this look like for us? I think there are some things we can see that that are that come out, maybe jump out to us and maybe are encouraging to us that that this example in these first five verses set for us may be set for you and for me to commit to in our own lives. And as it overflows, it begins to something to be something that our church lives out this year and for every year to come. We are not called to be experts on anything but Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we are to do so in a way that's compelling, especially. To those of us who think that this is a lofty and impossible task, look at verse three. It says, "And when I was with you, excuse me, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling." Even right now, if I, if as I say this, and I, you know, you know, you have been in a spot here as a herald, just like Paul, as a messenger, and the people which you know, the people to whom you are related, are meant to be the audience for this message of good news that God has entrusted to you. Some of you already start to get like really scared talk about jesus tell tell people about jesus that's that's great i'm not going to do that no that's for different people that's for people of a different personality type than me and even as i say it's your mission it's our mission as a church and your mission called by god to share this good news with the people to whom god has sent you you begin to experience fear and trembling and here's what i have to tell you paul says me too like if the founder of almost every church in what we now know as the ancient Near East, and what was then Asia Minor, if the founder of almost every church that exists now and even influencer of other churches that did exist was scared to death and was able to still do something, then maybe there's hope for you and me. Because if he was afraid, then even more so, we should feel not so bad about being afraid. He says, I came to you in weakness. And the first thing we would say, like, I, I just don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers to all the questions. I know if I, if I share this good news, if I even begin to say the word Jesus with the people to whom I, I know or to, to whom I've been sent, you, you would already be afraid of the kinds of responses they would give you. And Paul goes, that's cool, that's awesome. You don't need to know anything. You just need to know Jesus. In fact, make a commitment to know nothing else. Only know Jesus. If you will do this, then the Spirit will do something powerful according to verse 4. So be encouraged. If you find yourself thinking, man, I think that's actually for you, Jonathan. I think that's the pastor's job. That's not the church's job. I want to encourage you with these words. No, that's our job. That's our gift. That's our responsibility. We don't go to the nations with this good news because we feel pity. We don't go to the nations because we feel guilt. Our motivation for doing this is glory. It's glory for a king. And glory... So great that it actually overflows to us, and we are invited into sharing it. You're afraid? You tremble? If you started talking with your boss or your friend or your family about Jesus, would your speech start to shake? Would you start to stutter and stammer? Would it be difficult to find the words? Paul says, Yeah, me too. And he says, it's a good thing it's not about you. It's a good thing it's not about how much you can answer those questions. It's a good thing that it's not about how good you sound. It's a good thing that these speeches that you might imagine you have to make aren't what change lives. It's the good news of Jesus that does this. It's a good thing that God has entrusted the salvation of the world with His Son and not with you. It is not your responsibility or mine to live a perfect life. It is Jesus, and He has done that completely. It is simply ours to demonstrate that for others. And it's the way that we show love, even in spite of fear. The Bible tells us that there's greater love that no man has. There's no one who has greater love than the one who lays down his life for someone else. And I get to demonstrate for you on a weekly basis. Maybe I don't get to lay my life down for you. Maybe that isn't an opportunity that I have. But the next best thing is I get to tell you about the one that did. I may not get an opportunity this week to die in your place. I hope that if that opportunity comes, I'm not selfish and I I hope I do it. But if I don't, then the next best thing is to tell you about the one who did. We herald this message. And fear and trembling are actually a good thing, such that what gets preached isn't how well it was said, it was awkward but instead what is preached is this good news. Our fear is based on trusting in ourselves rather than knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Let me say that again. Our fear in this is based in a faulty trust that we've placed in ourselves and not in Christ. And the fear to do this and the fear to encourage someone in this is simply based on believing that you are greater than Christ. It's pride. Pride. Ultimately, the message isn't about you. And if you find yourself thinking, well, my story isn't that compelling. Well, then it's okay. You need to tell a different story. Tell the one about Jesus. This is a beautiful thing that God has given to us. And what message is it that we're communicating Look at Paul. He just simply says there's a demonstration of the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on later in this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there's a Spirit, God's Spirit, that gives presence to us and directs our thoughts and affections toward Jesus. He only glorifies himself. Over the last few weeks we've talked about this, that if anyone stands up and says, hey, the Spirit's telling me to do this, I feel like God is leading me to do this. If that thing isn't ultimately glorifying Jesus, then they're wrong. I mean, they may should do that. It may be a good thing, but you can't give God credit for it. The only thing that God does through the power of His Spirit is glorify Himself by revealing His saving Son. That's that's what He does. So if I'm like, hey, I think God is calling me to do this thing, you should first ask me, well, how and in what way does that glorify Christ? Well, I think I should move here. I should move there. God doesn't care where you live. God can glorify Christ wherever you live. God's will is not hinged upon your decision. You get to be a vessel and God gets to use you to do something amazing such that he gets the glory and you do not. You're the mailman. I mean, I love what Amazon gives me stuff, but I've I've yet to hug the mailman and thank him. And, And neither do we focus on the messenger, but we see the message for what it is. It's about a God who saves and redeems and draws people in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see this explained for us in verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that there's no one who can speak by the Spirit of God and say Jesus is accursed. So if someone says, hey, God is leading me to relinquish my faith in Jesus, that's not the Spirit of God, that's another spirit. It may be a spiritual reality, it may be a spiritual thing, but if you're turning away from Jesus, that's not God doing it. And no one, he goes on to say, can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So celebrate the victory in this already. The fact that you're not throwing tomatoes or chairs at me as I'm telling you about Jesus is evidence that the Spirit is working in you. That the Spirit has not abandoned you. The fact that you're open to this and you're not infuriated by this is evidence that God has shown mercy on you and He's opening your heart and mind to this by the power and presence of His Spirit. And that's the thing we get to celebrate. That's the thing we get to glorify God for. So that verse 5 says, our faith is not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friend, this is such good news for me. If you listen to me for more than a few minutes, you realize I make up words. I sometimes begin a sentence heading this way, and halfway through it, I turn into my mother. Don't tell her I said that. But I turn into my mother, and, I just, and the sentence goes somewhere else. I have such a complicated set of dependent and independent clauses that sometimes it's hard to understand. I've listened to this. And sometimes I just come up with a new word, right? Like strategery. I'll am like, i, I add an L-Y to a word. To, that's, that's a word. Yeah, that's a thing. Jesus-E. That's, that's not a word. But I, if you listen to me long enough, you'll realize, wow, that's, that's pathetic. This guy does this for a living and he's making up words up there. It's, it's difficult to follow. He's hard to understand. This is encouraging to me. Thank God that your faith is not in my ability to put things in lofty big words, but your faith is in the slain and risen Son of God. And my hope, this is, this is the way I think we can test this, my hope that as you leave this place, on the drive back to where it is, wherever it is that you've come from, you don't say, boy, that was a good sermon. My hope is that you're not talking about me, you're talking about God. My hope is that you're not just talking about the awesome people in this room, although I love you, I love you very much, but my hope is that you see God in it. So that you don't glorify human beings and your faith does not rest in the wisdom of men because it will Fail. But instead, it's in the power of God to save. So what's our response? If God's saving people, and not through human wisdom, but by the power of His Spirit and and demonstrating for us in in this good news, let us resolve to know nothing but the good news of Jesus. And here's how I think this might look for us. Here's how I think our lives might be changed by this. This is what this is not. Let me give you ten things that I think we we are definitely not. Because he's making a differentiation about what we are to do and what he wants to communicate and what the church ought to look like. What ought to shape and build the church. So this is what it's not. This is not a sermon to make you into a good, moral, well-behaved person. When I stand here and open the Bible, the course of our time together isn't to make you better behaved. That is behavioral management. That is repainting something, but not changing its identity. You know this as well as I do. Just because you're not cussing out loud doesn't mean that those words aren't reverberating inside of you. Am I right? So my hope isn't just to to change the outward disposition. My hope is to give you good news that Christ can change the inward. This means that the worst thing in the world is not out there. This means that the most evil thing in the world is inside you and me. This is devastating. I do not want to simply make you into a good moral person. The Bible has a word for those people and they were better at it than you and they were called Pharisees and Jesus, a merciful and loving guy, was a jerk to them for a purpose. We do, I don't want to make you into good moral people. It isn't the goal. You don't need the gospel for that. You just need to impress other people. You have to love the approval of moral people to want to be a moral person. Here's the second thing. Is now, we, this, we don't model our time together based on commercial entertainment when we get together whether it's in gospel community whether it's on a sunday morning whether it's across the table for lunch or coffee we gather together by the power of the gospel to be shaped by jesus we don't just take what the culture gives and swallow it and and stamp jesus on it and call it the church that's not us we are something radically different we don't model ourselves after the culture. We model, model ourselves after a kingdom that is not of this world. Thirdly, we, we have a simple formula and we stole it from Paul and we stole it from the first churches. We gather together, we engage in proclamation, thanksgiving for, for who Jesus is and then we're scattered and sent out. We gather together, we scatter out. The gospel gathers us together to huddle around the fire and warmth that God gives us in Jesus and we're scattered out to spread that fire. Right? We gather together. This is just over and over. This is such an unoriginal commitment we make. We gather together, we huddle around the gospel, and it warms us as a fire so great that we go and we warm someone else with it. It's, we scatter out. We gather, we scatter. It's just over and over and over again. If you're like, hey, what are you what's your plans for 2016? They're the same for 2020, 2030. We're gonna gather around the gospel, we're gonna claim to know nothing but Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and then we're gonna scatter out and we're gonna make that known. We're gonna make that known when we gather, we're gonna make that known when we scatter. We're going to make that known in what, the songs we sing. We're going to make that known in the scripture we read. We're going to make that known in the prayers we pray. We're going to make that known every way we possibly can. Radically unoriginal. So unoriginal. This is, this is like this is, this is the least original thing that we could do. It's very uncreative. It's a forced thing. The gospel is the thing that transforms us, it's the thing that grows us, and it's the thing that strengthens us. So believing in Jesus, right? Proclaiming the words of faith toward Jesus, like the Apostles' Creed that shapes our understanding of Jesus. It's not an entrance exam into some club. It's the thing that transforms us. It's the thing that grows us. And it's the thing that strengthens us. So we don't graduate from the Gospel. We don't go like, oh, Jesus is Lord. Thanks, that's great. Let's move on to the five steps to a healthy year, right? We don't go, thanks for that, I, know, I, get, I get it, Jesus, that's great, Jesus. Now, well, tell me some practical things, practical steps I can take in my, in my life. Those are good, take them, but if they're somehow a replacement or somehow meant to imply that this gospel, this goodness of what Jesus has done is somehow insufficient, then that is pride and we reject it. It is the gospel that shapes us. So even now, as you hear me say this, like, there, there's something in you and it's pride that pushes back against us. I like, go, oh, no, look, you need Jesus. Like, literally every question is answered by Jesus. Literally every question we have claimed, according to Paul, to know nothing. We don't want the answers to all these other questions. We just think that Jesus is ultimately that answer. And the answers to those other questions flow from the right answer to the first. And even now you're like, well, it must be more complicated than that. That's pride. That's us saying, look, no, no, my life's more complicated. I need more than Jesus. Or for some of you on the other side, not not pride, but instead kind of a prideful form of self-deprecation. You live in despair, and you're like, Jonathan, you don't know what I've done. There's no way Jesus can forgive me. That's pride. You're saying what you have done is greater than what Jesus has done? And so we, we run not instead instead not to the law or to good advice, but we run to good news. And so if you're like, Jonathan, I killed a guy and he's buried in my backyard. I don't go, hey, we need to dig him up and turn you in. But instead, here's what I get to say to them. Jesus forgives you. Jesus wants to cleanse you and give you a new life marked by his hope and his joy. Now, once that changes you, let's go dig him up and turn yourself in. But if you put a guy in jail, it doesn't make him less of a murderer. His heart must be changed. He's just simply locked up. And that's true of everything we bring to the table. Jonathan, I'm really good. I'm really, I, I got all these Bible verses memorized. I have lots of Jesus t-shirts. Okay, Jesus has done something great for you. And your identity isn't it. Or if you come with despair and you say, God, Jonathan, you don't know what I've done. I've done awful things. There's no way I could have hope. I I said the same good news to you as the murderer, as the self righteous saint. I say, look, Jesus has done something for you, and it's greater than anything you can do. We commit to this. This is what grows us. And when we think we can outgrow it, we've actually jumped into something else. The fifth one this is not just some sort of marketing trick that we call Jesus, this is uncomfortable. This is not the entertainment to which you run to in your phone, your iPad, your devices, your television. This is not that. This is not the entertainment with Jesus' name on it. This is intentionally uncomfortable. This will convict you. This will hurt you. Here's a side note. This will be new to a lot of you. This will feel deeply uncomfortable. And that feeling of guilt, that feeling of of disconnection to who God is and starts to stir you, this, this is what God uses to draw you to himself. We come and operate out of conviction. Knowing that for every guilt that we feel, Jesus overflows with grace. For every mistake, Jesus overflows with forgiveness. And so when that conviction deep deep inside of you wells up and you begin to think, I'm not good enough, Jesus immediately meets you with, yes, I know, that's why I'm so good. And every time that that wells up, I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I, I've got this figured out. Jesus hammers in, no, 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 I have saved you. I have done this for you. The sixth one, this, is, this kingdom is bigger than our own sense of comfort. This kingdom is, in fact, often built opposite to the things that make you and I comfortable. Seventh, this is not a product that we sell. We do not charge for the gospel. This is not a country club to which you buy in. This is a club for which the dues have already been paid. The goal is not to simply have a club of people and hide from the world. The goal is to be a club of people that Jesus crazily paid all the debts for so that everybody can get in. This this is it. This is a radical picture of the gospel in our community. Eight we welcome the toughest, deepest, grittiest, most desperate. I'm stealing someone else's words here that I loved a few weeks ago. We welcome the toughest, the deepest, the grittiest, the most desperate, and most shocking questions. We're not afraid of them. Because we know that Jesus is a deeper and better answer, we're not afraid of awkward questions. We're not fair, afraid of fear and trembling, as Paul says for us. We look. At, this, is, this might be fearful. You might tremble. This might be weird. This might be tough, but we're not afraid of that because we think the answer is sufficient in Jesus. We're not afraid of those questions. It's just that we believe that they're all answered in Jesus. This is what this also means. This means that this is a safe group of people in which to experience doubt, struggle, and difficult questions. This is a safe place to struggle with things that really hurt and really destroy and really have ruined your family your life and your happiness this is a safe place to discuss that just know that we're going to tell you jesus is the solution and if you're not there and you're sitting there like that's that sounds great for you i get it you're really excited about this but that's not for me i'm not in that place i'm in a deep dark season right now and that's not for me that's okay just know that that's where we will compel you we will constantly draw you into that and we will love you every step of the way It is only our pride that works against these things. It's only our pride to think that we need more than Jesus. It's only our pride to think that our problem is greater than Jesus. It's only pride to think that the things that we have done outweigh and eclipse that which Christ has done for us. And that's why it's difficult for us sometimes to read the Bible in this culture. This culture wants five steps of clickbait, right? Five things you should do in the new year. Here's the catch about the Bible. This is really tricky, all right? The Bible has very little to say about what you ought to do. It has very much to say about what God has done. The Bible has very few times where it says, here are the steps you need to take. Instead, over and over and over again, the Bible expounds upon the steps which God has taken for you. And so it's very difficult. We're tempted to run and say, no, no, this is what you ought to do. And Paul reminds us with astounding clarity we ought to decide to know nothing except for jesus christ and Him crucified let us be the people who are shaped by that and are changed by that thank god every time i make up a silly word thank god and go isn't it amazing that god could use that guy to make clear the thoughts of the gospel Now you caught for the rest of the chapter that we do want to dig into spiritual truth We do believe in a a godly type of wisdom, but they're not from the rulers of this age. They're not with the kind of flavor that the world offers. The wisdom that we impart is eternal in nature. It doesn't fit into history. It doesn't fit into anything that we seek to to contain it inside of. This is is grander. This is greater than this. So we thank God. Thank God when, when somebody in this room messes up. Thank God and go, isn't it amazing that God would save that person? Isn't it amazing we can thank God to know nothing else but Jesus and how satisfying he is? You see, Christian joy is not about avoiding life while dreaming about heaven. It's about taking a deep and honest look at all of our life on earth through Jesus' eyes. And it's only there that we find hope. This means for us as a church, Christian friendships do not simply allow us to bask in the sunshine of God's grace. They actually help us to roll up our sleeves and strive for holiness. And the kind of humility we experience when we know Christ and his sacrifice for us is radical. We assume, get this, this is crazy, Christians ought to be the hardest people to defend because we've been transformed by radical grace. We forgive radically. We ought to be the hardest people to offend. And that means when we rub against one another which will happen, we immediately assume that other person is right and we ought to repent of something. We immediately assume, some of you this is really tough, we assume, not that we're right, but we assume that Jesus is doing something to form us. And God has not put those people in our path to make us happy. He's put us in our path that we might share good news. And pushing, or living in community like this leads us and requires us to die to our own pride. You see, what Jesus is doing here and has accomplished for us is meant to be the center stage that Paul gives it. And the Christian life following Jesus is a life of radical unoriginality, committed to having a posture of turning away from that which is ungodly and turning to that which is good and godly. And we do so not out of compulsion, but because we are motivated, motivated by His great love and mercy. So hear me when I say this. When our focus is Jesus, it's on the grace that He gives. Do not be motivated or bullied into believing something because you think something bad will happen. That will wear off. But instead, boldly confess sin and failure and mistakes even, because we know that Jesus has paid for it at the cross. And if you know nothing, if you know nothing at all in this world, if you are known at your funeral for knowing nothing, But one thing, let it be that Jesus Christ is good and He has been crucified for you. And let that be a resolution. Let that be a decision, a judgment that we make over and over and over again until Jesus returns. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We are so grateful to You for what You have done for us. We are so grateful to You that You have saved us, that while we were dead in sin and trespass. You did not run from us and avoid the mess, but you gladly entered into it for our sake. God, we thank you so much that we cannot take credit for this. We thank you that our failure to understand some of the deep and abiding questions in our own lives is actually meant to be an encouragement to us. that you have made yourself known to us through Jesus. So if there's some in this room right now and they're wondering, who are you, God? Are you even real? And the thoughts of talking about God just seem absurd. Would you begin to open their eyes and their minds that there really is a sufficient and eternal answer to all of life's questions? And it is that Jesus has made a way. Jesus has given us a new life, a new life in which he means to share his glory forever and ever. And in it, there is greater joy Even in sorrow and pain and loss, there is an abiding and deep sense of love and joy that you will not forsake us or leave us.